The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Romans 8, 18-27 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I know many of you are new to worshiping with us at the middle school. It's been 18 months since we worshiped here together. Just a couple things you'll need to know. One is we never know what the temperature will be. And the temperature outdoors may or may not have any bearing on what it was. I thought this is going to be a perfectly cool fall day, and somehow yet it's still warm in here. Um, It's remarkable. The other thing is, as wonderful it was at times to meet outdoors, I was reminded again this morning that the acoustics indoors are much better. And so it was just wonderful to hear you all sing and be able to hear you, as opposed to at the farm where the the noise sort of all goes up and is hard to hear. Take your Bibles and turn them to Romans 8, if you haven't already. We're in the study on this chapter that we've called the greatest chapter in the Bible. So I remember hearing a comedian discuss living in New York City with young children. And he said that on more than one occasion, he was out in the city walking with his kids when he'd run into someone that he knew. And so they'd say hello, and within the first few moments there, he would introduce his children to this friend, to which the other person would introduce their dog. And he went on to make the point that many in the city treated their children, their dogs, like children. In fact, he said some even pushed their puppies around in strollers. Like, that's funny because it's ludicrous, right? How would anyone think having a dog and having a child are similar? Like there is a clear and qualitative difference between a person and a pet, and it's silly to compare them. Well, here in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, he talks about a comparison we often make. And he graciously reminds us that it's a silly comparison. He says the comparison is between our present suffering and our future glory. Look again at verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Now, if I were to say that, like if this were not from the Bible, this were my statement, ah, it's foolish to compare your suffering to future glory, you could roll your eyes at me. You could look at me and ask, Josh, what kind of suffering have you experienced? To make a statement like that, explain to me what kind of suffering you experienced so I can determine if I should should listen and accept your statement. Well, 
I would encourage you not to say the same to the Apostle Paul. Because he, he lists a partial record of his suffering in one of the letters he wrote to the Corinthian church. Here's the list. It's just part of it. Whipped 39 times on five different occasions. Beaten with rods three times. Stoned just once. Shipwrecked at sea three times. And that doesn't mention going without food and water and clothing. So when Paul writes about suffering, he writes from deep personal experience. Of course, Paul is merely the human letter of this book, of this letter to the Romans. This was inspired, the human author of it, this was inspired by God. So God spoke through the Apostle Paul. So it's not simply coming from this man, the Apostle Paul, but through him from God himself. And God also knows about suffering. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die in our place for our sins. So this statement is not sort of the sheltered, it's not a statement from sheltered, naive kids on a college campus who are speaking ignorantly about events on the other side of the globe that they really don't know anything about. This statement of fact comes from a full and deep understanding of suffering. This statement is not an off-the-cuff statement. It's actually a statement of deeply thoughtful reflection. Because it begins this way, For I consider. Paul has meditated and he's reflected on future glory that awaits in God's kingdom and he has likely done it during immense suffering. Maybe while he was floating in the Mediterranean Sea for a day and a night after being shipwrecked. Maybe it was during the months that he was chained to a Roman soldier in a cave-like dungeon. See, during times of suffering, he has carefully considered God's promise of future glory and says, listen, they don't even compare. A puppy and a person are more alike than present suffering and future glory. Now this reflection comes right in the middle of this chapter, which focuses on all the blessings that God gives his people. So if Romans 8 were a meal with course after course lovingly prepared for us, this verse is the entree, right? It's right in the center, and I think this is the function it serves. We read about all these blessings, we hear all these blessings, and we see a disconnect between what we're experiencing in our lives. And so it helps us understand that the difficulties in our life do not invalidate the promise of God's blessings. Isn't that how we feel sometimes? How can God really be for me like it says in Romans 8, if I'm suffering this right now? And here's God's answer. He says to you, Child, your future glory is far greater than your present suffering. So much greater, God says that they can't even be compared. If a photo were snapped of your future glory, you could not magnify it enough to even find your present suffering. It is microscopically small in comparison. So in verses 19 through 27, the Apostle Paul, he considers the topic of present suffering and future glory from two viewpoints, from creation and from the Christian. So he begins with creation in verses 19 through 22. And the first thing I want you to see is this. Creation is waiting for future glory. Creation is waiting for future glory. Look again at 19. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope 
that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. So here in these verses, the Apostle Paul, he portrays creation. So here he's using it as everything that God has made apart from mankind. So everything you see, everything God has made apart from mankind, he he groups it all together and he personifies it. So he says that right now during this season of suffering, this time of suffering, this time of waiting for future glory, creation is doing three things. It's looking, it's longing, and it's laboring. Okay, creation is like a a child sitting on the front porch waiting for dad to get home. Like like a parent sitting in the audience waiting for the the, the curtain to open on the school production. Like a groom standing at the front of the church just waiting for those doors in the back to open. So what is it creation is waiting for with such excitement? Look at verse 19. It says, for God's sons to be revealed. Now, we know who God's sons are because we saw this last week when we looked at verse 14. All who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, been made alive by the Spirit of God, and adopted into God's family are God's sons. So, men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile alike. So, let me pause for just a moment and ask you a question Are you a son of God? Have you been led? by the Spirit of God, to repent of your sin and to seek forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone. See, only by faith in what Jesus Christ did for you do you become a son of God. But it says here, creation is waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. Doesn't creation see us now? Like, so if you, if you sit out in your backyard around the fire pit, don't the stars look down and see you? You take a walk in your neighborhood, don't the trees look down and see you? I know this, if you have a dog and you get up to go make some food, the dog sees you because he comes along and he's hoping you drop something. So so if they can see us now, then why are they constantly looking at us with this type of eager anticipation? Because they know we don't look now like we will one day look. We are cracked and broken pottery but they can see the light bursting through the seams. And they're waiting for that moment when the outside looks like the inside. Creation is waiting for the moment when our true identity as sons of God and temples of the Holy Spirit is no longer hidden by sin. Creation is looking at us for a sign that future glory has come because, for this reason, creation is longing for that same glory to spread from us to it. It tells us here in this passage that the only reason that creation is suffering right now, that's cursed right now, is because of what mankind did. In other words, creation, all that God made, that didn't rebel against God. Mankind did. And it has spread to creation. So in the garden long ago, where the first man and woman, they're given a command, they rebel against God, and a curse is leveled against humanity because of sin, And because of humanity, it spread to all of creation. So God said this in Genesis 3. He says, cursed be the ground because of you. Not because of it, but because of you. So instead of fruit and flowers, now the ground is going to produce thorns and thistles. You see, the creation was was made to, to produce that which 
gives life and do it easily. And it says this curse has come upon it. Why, but, so now you can only get it if you work hard and sweat and labor and toil. Creation is working against you, but not because of its own choice. Since the curse came through mankind's actions, creation knows that once mankind is fully redeemed and refashioned, that it will be next. And creation is longing for that day of rebirth. See, right now, verse 20 tells us, creation is subjected to futility. That word futility is interesting. If you ever read through the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, there's a word that's repeated over and over and over. It's the word vanity. And this is, this is the same word that's translated. And vanity there is best pictured in Ecclesiastes as this, as chasing after the wind. So, so the wind is blowing and you're going to go catch the wind in a jar. Can you imagine that? Spending your life trying to catch the wind in a jar? Talk about frustrating and empty and exhausting. Well, it says that's what creation is subjected to, this constant frustration and exhaustion and emptiness. It explains it further in verse 21 is bondage to decay. We see this, don't we? Everything is constantly in a process of decay. A couple nights ago, Carrie and I, we, we turned on one of those home improvement shows, which is great. 30 minutes, sometimes an hour, the project's done, I never got off the couch. Right, so that, that's why we like them. Right? We see, oh, that's how it looked like, now it looks like that. Whew, we did a good job. Like, th- that's why we, like, all of it done, wrapped up tidily. So in this, this particular episode, the house had been sitting vacant for 15 years. I'm going to ask you a question. During that 15 years, did the house improve? During that 15, okay, how about this? During that 15 years, did the house stay the same? Would it surprise any of you that during those 15 years, that water got in through the roof, and it it got to the floor, and it got to the walls, and, and they actually had to tear down a large section of the house because it just was not salvageable? Of course not. We all know that's what happens because we see it all around us. This is life. Creatures is in bondage. It cannot free itself from constant decay. And what it longs for is freedom. Freedom from constant decay. And so it looks with hope at God's children, knowing that one day we will be freed from decay by our Father. And it wants to join us in our glorious freedom. I think of creation like this, like a, like a good dog who has suffered under a cruel master for a long time, but every day it looks and it longs for and it hopes to be rescued. And it knows that when the time comes, it will, it will laugh and it will run and it will play like it was meant to. It will no longer be shackled and starved. Creation is straining at the leash, straining at the leash, just waiting for God to free us from decay so that it can come and play with us forever. So creation is looking and it's longing. But right now it's laboring under the bondage of sin. Verse 22 describes creation as a pregnant woman in the midst of labor. The pain is intense, but it's not permanent. On the other side of the pain will be something that will cause that pain, the memory of that pain to fade The joy of holding that newborn baby is worth the pain of getting there. But, I think I'm right, ladies, correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't always feel that way during labor. So last week we got to celebrate 
the birth of a new baby at Redeemer. So Tom and Evan, they welcomed a new son into their family. Now, my guess is that if the next time you see Tom or Evan, you know, they're out, if you said, hey, can you show me a picture of baby Jack, that they will pull out their phone and be like, one picture? And just like, there'll be picture after picture after picture. Now, if you ask Tom this question, hey, Tom, could you show me a picture of Evan while she was in labor? He would look at you like, that is a very strange request. And I would guess he would say something like this. I don't have any pictures during that time. My life would have been threatened if I had taken any. Why don't we take pictures of the labor? Because we don't celebrate the birth pains. We endure them until the moment they end and there's a new life there. And this is creation right now. It's laboring. I mean, we know this, right? Have we not watched it? Disease? death, drought, hurricanes, tornadoes, pandemics, on and on it goes. It's intense. It's mind-numbing pain. But one day creation knows it will have something to celebrate. When the sons of God are revealed in all of our glory, creation joins us. So Paul begins By looking at this truth from creation's viewpoint, now he moves to the Christian, and he makes the same point here. Christians are waiting for future glory. It's not just creation. It's not just out there. It's us. We're waiting for this. Verse 23. Not only that, he writes, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also, so along with creation, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. So as Christians, we do three things during this season of present suffering. First, we groan. We groan. Paul says in verse 23, we groan within ourselves. Listen, we don't minimize suffering. There's bad theology that tells you, oh, you're not really suffering. Oh, it's just in your mind. Oh, if you just do this, all suffering will be gone. And that is a lie. That is not Christian teaching. We don't minimize suffering. It is part of this world, and being a Christian does not exempt you from a life of suffering. Wasn't this a point in verse 17? Do you remember that? Where he basically says, if Jesus suffered, don't we who follow Jesus suffer? So we reject outright the type of teaching that says following Jesus makes life easier. It does not. Does it make it sweeter? Yes. Does it make it better? 100%. Does it make it easier? Less suffering? In one of the many messages the Apostle Paul shared when he traveled to churches, and I don't know how he got invited back because this is one. We're told in Acts 14 this was his message. This was his sermon. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Thanks for your visit, Paul. Like, this, was his, this was his sermon. This was his guest speaking. Guess what? You're going to walk through many trials, many tribulations, much suffering before you get there. Christianity does not provide you with a get-out-of-suffering-free card. I think the older we get, the more we understand groaning. We find ourselves groaning when we bend over to tie our shoes You know, the first time you do it and it just escapes and you realized it, I just groaned. 
All I did was tie my shoes. Or we groan because we wake up and we're injured. We didn't go to bed injured. And you're like, when I was young, I went to bed injured and woke up feeling better. Somehow I went to bed feeling fine and woke up with things hurting. We groan because we get winded and we didn't run. We're like, that was flat and I walked slowly. Why am I breathing heavy? Here's why. Because you're decaying. You're welcome. This is life in our world. This is bondage to decay. This is not our entire story, but it is a part of it. It's a daily, real, true, honest part of it. We groan. But we don't just groan, we wait. Now, there are different types of waiting. So I have a dentist appointment later this month where I will get my first crown. What a milestone. I'm waiting for it. But I'm not waiting for it eagerly. I'm waiting for it anxiously. I'm trying not to think about it. I am not excited for that day to get here. My middle son, Max, was waiting for an orthodontist appointment earlier this month where his braces would come off. He was waiting for that appointment. He was not anxious. He was eager. He wanted to be set free from bondage. So every time he thought about it, he got excited. He talked about it. He had it circled on his calendar. Like, he couldn't wait for that day to arrive. This was a, a, a time of excitement, not dread. So what are we waiting for? We had a sense of it earlier in talking about creation, but we see it clearly in verse 23. He says, we're waiting for adoption. Like, hold on a second. I, we talked about that last week. That happened already, right? And it's like, yes, in part. God brought us into his family, signed, sealed, but maybe not yet delivered. We wait for our older brother to return to take us home to live with our father forever. Not just that, he says in verse 23, we wait for the redemption of our bodies. This is so important. I want you to get this. The Apostle Paul, he began this section on waiting in the future and future glory by talking about creation. And now he talks about our bodies because he wants to keep us from an error that's easy to embrace. Here's the error. We could start to think that one day we're going to die and we're going to live forever floating on crowds, sort of like an angel baby playing a harp and singing worship lullabies. Right? There's this sense like a worship service forever. I mean, I like coming to church, but an eternal worship service, I'm not sure how I feel about that. And this is sometimes how we think about the future. Like, yeah, that'll be better. Like, this is not the future for Christians. It says God is going to remake this earth. He doesn't destroy the earth. He refashions it. He remakes it so that, listen to this, try to get your mind around this. The most amazing things you see in creation will pale in comparison to what they, not, what they will look in the future. So think about that. You're going to stand in the Grand Canyon right now and you're going to be amazed and you're going to say, like, this will be nothing compared to what God's going to do. You're on the banks of the Niagara Falls, and you're hearing the roaring, and you're seeing the waves, and you're like, this is nothing when God remakes it. But the same thing is true for our bodies. He is going to take our bodies, and they are our bodies, and he will reform them. Somehow they will be made new, and we will use them in ways and with joy that we cannot now imagine. When John Piper preached this passage to his church, he ended by talking to the children about this promise. I thought it was really good. I want to read a section of it to you. 
He said, therefore, I can say with great confidence that if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and follow him as your Lord, there is nothing good and happy in your life on this earth that will ever be lost. Whatever is bad will be taken away, but all the good and happy experiences will be kept in the new earth forever. You will have the best body imaginable, and they'll be playing and climbing and swimming and running and jumping and swinging and skiing and roller skating and skateboarding and biking and hiking and bouncing and tumbling and hopping and whatever else you do when you are very, very happy. So, whenever you think about the future and what you will be doing forever and even after you die and after Jesus comes back, think about these things. But just remember this. The reason these things are going to make you really happy and the reason you will never be sad again is that on all your playing and climbing and swimming and running and jumping and biking and hiking and bouncing and tumbling and hopping, you are going to be using your bodies to obey God and praise his great and wonderful name. Brothers and sisters, what are you waiting for most with a redeemed body? I think it's probably a combination of no longers and always wanted tos. I no longer want to deal with a migraine headache every day. I no longer want to suffer from anxiety and depression. I no longer want to feel the effects of aging and decay. I've always wanted to play the guitar and sing like really loud, without people covering their ears. I've heard of runner's highs. I've only ever had a runner's low. I've never enjoyed a second of running, but it seems like that would be cool to do. Maybe I could run and be like, oh, I get it now. Took heaven, but I get it now. I've always wanted to smile and not be self-conscious. All of this, all of these no longers, and I've always wanted to, but with an unbridled joy and delight because we are with the one who both created us and redeemed us. So here we are, we're groaning, but we are waiting for our bodies to be redeemed and we're waiting for this world to be redeemed. So what do we do while we're waiting? We hope. We hope. It's not our job to discover when future glory is coming. We can't usher it in ourselves. Verse 18 says it's something God reveals in his time. So while we wait, we hope. Verses 24 and 25. Now, biblical hope is not like hoping for my Vikings to beat the Panthers this afternoon. Right? That's a possibility, a likelihood, maybe an impossibility. I'm not quite sure, but that's... eh, who knows? That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is confident faith that something will happen. We trust God. And even though we can't see the promise of glory, we know it's coming. And so we live in confidence in what God has promised. So often we put our hope in things we can see. This is what we're warned about. So we put our hope in that promotion that comes with a pay raise, that comes with this and this and this. And okay, we put our hope in that relationship. If that gets fixed or restored, or if this happens or that happens, then we put our hope in a bonus, a healthy checkup, all of these things. But listen, if you can see it, then it can be taken away. 
Instead, we need to place our hope. We need to place our hope in something beyond our ability to mess it up. Place your hope in something that you can't mess up. That's beyond your grasp. So we put our hope in what God has promised. In the promise of redeemed bodies, in the promise of a recreated earth, in the promise of a renewed and restored relationship with the Father. But we need to be honest about something. When we are suffering, when the groaning is constant, it can be hard to hope. So what do we do then? What do we do when even hoping seems too hard? Well, we learned this in the beginning of the chapter. Here's a verse that we keep coming back to as we look at Romans 8. It's verse 5. We set our minds on the things of the Spirit. So we rehearse the promises of God. We recount His faithfulness. We recite Romans 8. Even if we can't get it memorized, we keep reciting it. We show up on a Sunday We gather and we sing and we listen and we look at God's love for us in the faces of his people around us. And when we fail and when we struggle, we ask God to comfort us with the truth that we will not always struggle. The sin that keeps us from glorifying God, the pain which strangles our hope, will one day be gone. We ask him for help to magnify him in our hearts and our bodies. And then we long for when glorifying him with our bodies will be as natural to us as flying is to an eagle or swimming to a dolphin. Maybe that seems too hard. Maybe because of your suffering you think, Josh, I want to hope, but I can't. I want to believe, I'm trying to believe, but the disappointment, the regret, the anguish, the affliction, they're too much. So what do I do then? Remember, you're not alone. God does not expect you to do it yourself because you cannot. He has already provided help for you in ways and depths you cannot imagine. I want you to look at this. Look at verse 26. He says in the same way. So we're talking about the same thing here. The Spirit also helps us in our weakness because... We don't know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We groan and we wait and we hope. But sometimes all we can do is groan. The waiting and hoping seem impossible. They may be for you. But they are not for the Spirit. In our weakness, the Spirit helps us. We don't do it alone. We don't conjure up the strength to make it. The Spirit helps us hope even when we cannot hope. Earlier in this passage, verse 23, the Spirit is called the first fruits. That was the first part of the harvest. It was brought back to the owner of the field so he could see it. And it was just to show him how great the harvest would be. Now, I don't know if we have farmers in here. I'm certainly not one. So let me put it in maybe our words. Have you ever walked into the kitchen when someone's making dessert and you see the mixer there and on the mixer are the end of the mixer are those beaters and something that looks really good is dripping from those beaters or you see a big bowl of chocolate and there's a spoon in it and so you take that spoon and you lick it that's the first fruits of the dessert right this is this is 
This is what causes us to eagerly wait for the rest of it. We hope that that dessert will be served soon. Listen, everything you experience now because of the Spirit of God, His guidance, His assurance, His comfort, His love, His compassion, His joy, His peace, any little bit, even if it's just a taste, even if it's just a glimpse, all of them, these are the first fruits that help us wait with joy and expectation and desire for what's to come. So how specifically does the Spirit help? Well, one way is by interceding for us. He prays for us when we can't pray for ourselves. Prayer is, at its very core, it's this. It's admitting how weak we are, right? So we say this in prayer. We go to God and we say, God, I can't do this, so I'm asking you to do it, right? So this is just basically what prayer is. I can't do it. I'm weak. You're strong. I'm poor. You're rich. So please do what I can't do. This is what prayer is. It's, a, it's an expression, an admission of weakness. Think about this. Sometimes we don't even know what to pray. That's how weak we are. We struggle to do the thing that we can only do when we're weak. So it's weakness multiplied by even more weakness. So how does God respond? What a disappointment. Will she ever figure it out? I don't know if that was a good choice. Is that what this passage teaches us? Or does God respond with compassion? Is his heart moved by the people he loves? Is he annoyed that you can't figure it out? It says this, he sent his spirit so in those moments the spirit can take over. He'll pray for us. See, when, the, when we struggle to pray, I don't even know what to say. The spirit prays what we would pray if we knew what we needed to pray for. So many years ago, I was speaking in a church service in Tanzania, East Africa. Because Swahili is one of the few languages I haven't learned. Just kidding. Because I don't speak Swahili, my missionary friend was translating for me. And there's a couple times during that sermon that something interesting happened. I said a sentence, I don't know, eight or ten words long maybe, and paused. And then he translated for two or three minutes. We're just thinking like, huh, that seems to be taking a lot longer than what I said. So I asked him afterwards. I said, Rob, what? Like there's a couple times I said something small and you talked for a while. What was going on? And he said, well... I knew they weren't going to understand what you said. And so I, I added some things to help them. So some of it could have been because it was very American or Western, what I said, and just they wouldn't understand it. Some was because these were new Christians. who They hadn't learned the Bible, and so he needed to explain. He said at least one time he tied it to something they'd been talking about in the past. But he was helping them. He said what I would have said if I knew what he knew. It says here, the Spirit knows your heart, the very depths of it, and He knows God's will. And so He prays for us. He says to God, well, we don't know what to say. When our pain is so intense that it says it comes out in inexpressible groanings, the Spirit translates those groanings to the Father. When we're suffering, we often don't know what to ask for, right? I mean, have you ever been suffering and asked, like, I don't, I don't know what God's will is right now. 
I don't know what to say because I don't know what God wants. Am I just supposed to suffer? Just endure it? Am I, am I supposed to pray for it to be relieved? Am I simply pray for patience? Am I, am I supposed to just pray like, oh God, bring good things out of it? Be a test? Like, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what he wants. It says in these moments, when it's hard and we're overwhelmed, it says the Spirit prays God's will for us. He prays what we can neither understand nor vocalize. I mentioned John Newton last week. John Newton was a British pastor in the late 1700s who understood suffering. He wrote Amazing Grace, right? Through many dangers, toils, and snares we have already come. He understood suffering. In fact, he was not only acquainted with it personally, but he, he helped a lot of suffering people. One, one contemporary actually said about Newton, he said his house was an asylum for the afflicted. So, like he knew suffering. He also had a way with words, and he provided a, an illustration that I think sums up this morning's passage. Here's what he said. He said, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, some sort of a large inheritance and his carriage breaks down a mile from the city. And so it would force him to walk the rest of the way. Right? So a large estate is away, large inheritance is waiting, carriage breaks down, it's another mile to go, but he's got to walk it. He says, what a fool we would think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out the whole remaining mile, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. See, he says there's no comparison between a broken carriage and a beautiful estate. And there's no comparison between present suffering and future glory. In fact, there's no use comparing even the greatest day you've ever experienced to one day in the Father's house. When Jesus went to the cross, he knew the suffering that was waiting for him. He knew there'd be physical suffering, beatings, whippings, thorns, nails, spear. But he knew the suffering would be much greater than that because he was going to take upon himself the sin of all of his people and with it the judgment of God on that sin. And so how did Jesus, knowing the suffering ahead, how did, he, how did Jesus endure that present suffering? Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, for the joy that lay before him he endured. Present suffering does not compare to future glory. Now I want you to hear what the writer of Hebrews says next. He says, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. Consider Jesus. Set your mind on him. Think about his suffering, yes, but about his resurrection, his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. Then what? Don't grow weary and give up. Keep groaning, but also keep hoping. The carriage may be stuck on the side of the road, but the kingdom is just ahead. Father, help us. It's hard for us to see beyond the carriage on the side of the road. It's hard for us to see behind the circumstance in our life that brings such suffering. Lord, we're not minimizing it. It's real suffering. People in this room, my brothers and sisters who I love, people who aren't in this room because of suffering, it's real and it's painful and it's difficult and they are groaning. 
My prayer is that they will see beyond it. They'll put their hope in what they cannot see, that your spirit will help them and intercede for them in their weakness, that they will consider Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And he is now at the right hand of the Father. He is tasting that future glory which we will one day taste with him. And help, help the most weary, the most exhausted, the most discouraged here, help them to not quit. Give them a taste, a sight, a scent of future glory in the face of Jesus Christ. pray this in his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquaverina, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.